Turn to Philippians chapter 4 in your Bibles, or on the app, or whatever. Philippians chapter 4 is one of those just absolutely amazing passages that, interestingly, has some of the most abused verses of the entire Bible. So I want to take some time and just unpack it and see what this means. You heard Paul read this passage that says we should never worry and all be, always be happy. And if you don't do that, you're sinning. That's a good start. Philippians 4, chapter, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers, this is ESV. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm. Thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, to help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity, not knowing that I am speaking of being in need. But I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content, I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. If in any and every circumstance I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble, and you Philippians yourselves note in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full credit and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word for us this morning. You know, I look at these passages... I look at, what is it, verse 6, be anxious for nothing. I spent three years in the Philippines back in the early days of my life. Sharon and I had just been married a little while. We took a six-week-old baby to the Philippines in 1969 to spend spend nine months there teaching at Faith Academy that turned into three years in church planting and a life change 
came back and went to seminary at Denver and did my PhD work at Fuller, headed back to the Philippines, and my heart's been there even though God interrupted and said, no, no, not Philippines, Western. And I'm still not happy about that, though I love what I do at Western. And you know what happened to the Philippines just, what, 10 days ago? I thought about putting some slides up just to show you some of the destruction there. The reporters have gotten in Tacloban, they're in central Philippines. Brent Ralston and Chris Ralston are good friends. A group from uh, Junction City went to be with Brent and Chris to do an evangelistic crusade with them in Ormoc City. You've not seen any pictures of Ormoc City, but it's even worse destroyed than Tacloban. They arrived on the day before the typhoon went through, and they went to Ormoc City on Friday a week ago, and on Saturday they took some bags of relief supplies, the entire place just decimated and handed out to the people in their church a bag of supplies. And anybody who took a bag of supplies had to take two more bags to give to their neighbors, and there's nothing there. The reporters and the big airplanes are not coming into Ormoc City. I've seen pictures from Brent of their church building there. There's nothing left. There's a concrete slab. I saw pictures of the two daughters of the pastor having a very meager lunch and the back wall of their house was the chest of drawers that there was no clothes left in because all the clothes were blown away and they've laid a piece of something over the top to keep the worst of the sun off. I got an email from Russ Ramona Simons, another, Chris's second generation Philippine missionary, Russ is a second-generation Philippine missionary. I mean, they know the place really well. And Russ and Marona were talking about they were assembling aid kits to send to central Philippines where the typhoon Yolanda was known in the Philippines, Haiyan, everywhere else. And these kits consisted of 10 cotton balls, three Band-Aids, a little bitty thing of betadine, and some Q-tips. That's all they had. Be anxious for nothing? What does that mean? Emily here at the church arranged for me to stay at the Mill Inn Bed and Breakfast. Marvelous place. Highly recommended. Sumptuous breakfast. Food, oh my gosh. I mean, are you, how many of you guys are foodies? Okay, go there. <laughs> I mean, it will meet your expectations. They had three different quiches, a savory sausage and bacon and the Belgium waffle. And I sat there and thought of these people in the Philippines that have nothing. I mean, literally, they have nothing. Be anxious for nothing? What does that mean? While I was in the Philippines, I got involved in refereeing wrestling. 
which is a lot of fun. I like to get best seat in the house. That's why I like to officiate weddings, and I like to referee wrestling. I like to see what's going on. And uh, Faith Academy had a good, has a good wrestling team. And uh, one of the guys there, uh, he's, a, he's a tough kid, but he was going up against a guy who was wrestling internationally. I mean, he knew he was going to get his butt kicked. It was, he, he was just... He was just so nervous because this guy, well, his name was Seliquini, if that says anything. <laughs> and man, he was dirty. He was dirty. His favorite move was a grapevine, if you've done any wrestling. And it's a place where you grab the arm and you bend it and flip the person back. And, you, and it's a dead-on pin if you can flip the move. In the process, there are two ways to do a, a grapevine. One way, you go with the joint and it just gets a pin. The other way, you go against the joint and it dislocates the arm. So I knew he was going to do that, so I had guys demonstrate the move for me so I know what was going on. Well, this guy was going to wrestle Seliquini. Figuring there was about one chance in a million that he wouldn't get pinned with a grapevine. And he was back in the prep room doing his exercises, warming up, and he was chanting to himself, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Is that God's promise that you can survive the grapevine and pin Seliquini? Now, the rest of the story, Seliquini did get the grapevine. I saw it coming. I was in the right spot. I was watching carefully, and sure enough, he did it the dirty way to dislocate his arm, and I stopped it. And that guy, Seliquini, jumped up and cussed me. I should have thrown him out right on the spot. I was a little too compassionate. And then he pinned our guy, but not with a grapevine. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I did a wedding a week ago. Blake and Lindsay love doing premarital. If it was a wedding at the end, it's just gravy. Blake and Lindsay, about a month before their wedding, Lindsay was at work, and suddenly her right hand was not working. She was entering some data on the terminal in the place where she works, and her fingers would not go to the number keys the way they should. That's weird. And she tried to shake it off, and her hand wouldn't shake right, and she stood up and almost fell over. Three hours later, she was in the hospital, 26 years old, with a stroke. Except it wasn't a stroke, as it turned out. It was an acute MS attack. I met with Blake and Lindsay after two days in the hospital. I prayed with them in the hospital, and I met with them. And I sat with Blake and Lindsay, and Lindsay could just barely walk. We couldn't go up to my office at the seminary. We had to meet in one of the downstairs classrooms. And we sat down, and here's two people who really love each other. And I looked at Blake, and... He had a very somber look on his face, sitting next to the woman he loved who just barely made it to the room. I looked at Lindsay and I said, Lindsay, I'm sorry to do this, but I have to ask you the hard questions. Are you willing to be a burden to Blake for the rest of your life? And Lindsay began to wail, not sob, wail. Emotions all over the place. 
And she came back after a bit and looked at me with that determined Lindsay face and, no! I said, Lindsay, what do you think for better or for worse meant? You're going to say that. What does for better or for worse means? And she said, that's about him, not about me. She was perfectly prepared to have Blake be a burden that she would take care of. Was she willing to be a burden to Blake? Well, I did their wedding a week ago. They went off on their honeymoon to Disneyland. I'd like to do Disneyland in a wheelchair. And then Blake had some sort of an attack. We still don't know what it was. He thought maybe it was gout. And he couldn't walk either. His foot would not work. So he spent two days of their honeymoon sitting in their motel room. My God will supply all your needs. 26 years old, brand new married. Oh, one little detail. Lindsay was between health insurance. So all those tests and all those days in the hospital and all the stuff, they're now responsible for that money. Who knows? Many tens of thousands of dollars. My God will supply all your needs. See why Ken got out of town before he gave me this passage? <laughs> How do you deal with this? And be real about it. Now, there are a lot of people who are not real about this passage, and they cite these things as, I don't know how they cite them. A lot of times they come out as guilt statements for people who don't have enough faith to get what God wants to give you. And Lindsay has already heard from some of her friends that she doesn't have enough faith to receive her healing. What about Paul? What about Paul? You know, he planted this church 11 years earlier. And then he left. And in that time he left, he had been homeless. He had been shipwrecked. He had been whipped within inches of his life. He had been persecuted. He had been beaten and stoned and left for dead. And now he comes back to a church where there's conflict going on. And oh yeah, by the way, where is he when he writes this letter? Where is he? He's in what? In prison. What's the status of prisons in those days? It's not good. It's not good. Basically, it's a pit in the ground. Who gives you your food when you're in prison? Not the guards. Mm -mm. Not the state. Mm -mm. You just have to get it from your friends, if you have any friends. Maybe some other prisoners will share their food, but they don't have much either. That's where Paul is when he's writing this. This is dealing in real life. Now, for a lot of us, and I'm definitely one of those, my life is good. I work with some really, really hard situations. But my body works well. I've got a nice home, I've got a great wife, I've got kids, we're adding to that number. Uh, it's, it's a good thing. 
But boy, is that not true for a lot of folk. See, in this promises, in this passage, have to be true for everybody or they're not true for anybody. So let's take it through and look at what Paul is saying here, because I think this is actually a very, very, very powerful passage. And what happens here, he has some admonitions, he has some commands. Uh, What's the first command? I'm a question guy. What's the first command in this passage? What's the first command? What's the first command for us all, I guess I should say? It's the one we sang. Rejoice. Rejoice. So there's a command in verse 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Uh, there's a command in verse 5. Let your reasonableness or your gentleness be known to everyone. There's a command in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. And another one. Take everything to God. Take your prayer and supplication to God. And then in verse 8, the command is think or meditate about these things. Verse 9, practice these things. So those are the commands. And I want to think about those a bit and unpack them with you. Because what he's describing is somebody here who can live in a world where Typhoon Yolanda hits or where MS attacks you just before you get married or whatever. And he says this. He says, rejoice in the Lord. You know, what does rejoice mean? It means celebrate. It means... I think of when we were in, I was at Fuller, poverty-stricken student and all that kind of stuff. We saved up all our money. We had two elementary school boys, and we were living in Pasadena and decided to go down to San Diego and visit the zoo and SeaWorld, and we cobbled up every penny we had and, and went down for a, a weekend, long weekend of celebration. And uh, we stayed in a hotel room with a color TV. I mean, we died and gone to heaven, for crying out loud. I mean, this is a long time ago. This is like 1977. And we went to the zoo, and I mean, we saw everything and did everything. We went to SeaWorld. The boys wanted me to sit in the splash zone, so I did. I've got Shamu salt in my nose to this day. I, I mean, we just kind of did everything. And it was so much fun. And on the last day, we went back to another section of SeaWorld that we hadn't gotten to the first time we went. And we were going through it. And it was so fun. We were having a great time. We needed to leave about noon and get back to Pasadena. And at about 11.15, Don, my older son, saw something. He said, Dad, I want a Coke. Now, I'm thinking in 45 minutes... We're going to be on the I-5 raceway. And it's a long drive from San Diego to Pasadena. And what do boys who have recently drunk Coke need to do? Yeah. And how many rest stops are there on the San Diego raceway? Mm -mm. So I said, well, son, I'll tell you what. We're headed home here in just a bit. Why don't we wait till we get back up to Pasadena and get you a Coke there? 
Dad, I want a Coke. Son, let me just explain how it is. You know, and I went through the whole routine again. I want a Coke! And he is screaming his lungs out because of some stupid Coke. And I wish anything I could have pushed replay and started over again. So sure, have a Coke. You know, just pee on the floor of the car. It'll be good. Or something. Why did that ruin the entire event full of joyous stuff? Because he was in expectant mode that everything would be perfect. And one small disappointment and he went into total crisis mode. Our expectations are what we filter our life through. If you've read Genesis chapter 3, what is your expectation about this world? If you signed up to be on the Jesus team, who are your enemies? The world, the flesh, the devil. How nice are they? Not so nice. What is your expectation as you're being a Christian? I hope your expectation, things are going to be tough. And so our response at that point is what Paul says here, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I will say rejoice. See, the whole point is where is our expectation so we look for the right things. Had my son Don been a rational human being, (laughs) or had I been a little more wise dad, we could have avoided that. A lot of stuff that happens in this world is because we are told by our context everything should be good. And if it's not, somebody is to blame. And so we focus on the complaint side. What Paul is asking us to do is to expect that things will be bad, to expect that you'll be in prison, to expect there'll be conflict, to expect that there will be disease and demonic attack, and in that context, look for God. So we rejoice in the Lord. We do not rejoice in MS attacks. Nor do we lose our joy just because MS attacks happen. Rejoice in the Lord. He says, again, I say rejoice. That picture of what we do and our expectations is just real important. What we need to do is re-see our circumstances in light of God's expectations. If our expectations are that everything should be good because of whatever, and then when it's not good, then we see everything and say, you know, God has failed us. That's Satan's agenda, by the way. What Satan wants to do is have us look at the trouble that's in this world and say, your God doesn't care about you, because if he did, he wouldn't let this happen to you. Satan's agenda is to look at the trouble in your life and to say, your God does not care, because if he did, this would not be happening to you. Paul's agenda and God's agenda is for us to look at the world with all of its evil brought there by us and by Satan, And to look at the life of Jesus and the cross of Jesus and say, this is God who is suffering through extreme poverty. This is God who is going through severe political oppression. 
This is God who's being attacked by Satan himself. This is God who's dying on a cross and saying, gosh, if God would do that in this messed up world, how much he must care. Satan's agenda, this is so hard, your God doesn't care. Our wise word is to look at Jesus, who is God among us, and say how much he cares. It doesn't answer the problem of Typhoon Yolanda's or MS attacks, but it gives a reason to rejoice that our God would care enough to come and be with us. So it's rejoice in the Lord. And then he goes on. He says, let your reasonableness, your gentleness, be known to everyone. And what he's saying here, basically is this idea that uh, in your response, that your response would be with considerateness, with compassion. Let your gentleness, let your considerate. So when, some, when things are difficult, he's saying, if you rejoice in the Lord, then you can have compassion, considerateness, kindness, gentleness, towards somebody who is having a difficult time or somebody who's making your life difficult. Let your reasonableness. Where does that reasonableness come from? Well, that's that Jesus spirit in you that says, I'm in a broken, messed up, pain-filled world that also has a lot of goodness in it, and I am rejoicing in the fact that God is present in this broken up world. You know, if I'd have been God, I'm, I'm glad I'm not, but if I had have been... <laughs> I think when the fall of Satan happened, when he rebelled, I probably would push flush right then. Let's do this again. And when I create Adam and Eve as my covenant partners, image of God, so we can work together in a war zone where Satan's fall has already happened, and they join him, I know I would have pushed flush. Why did God not just push delete at that point? Because he cares and comes and calls and responds with compassion. When you understand that kind of thing, then we can do something different. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, that is weird. That is weird. Stick your finger there and go back to John chapter 11. We do a little bit of page turning here. John chapter 11 because I want to see what Jesus is like. John chapter 11 is the place where Jesus is in the context of Lazarus' death. Martha comes to him and says, I know that if you've been here, my brother would not have died, and he gives her a marvelous theology lesson. I know he'll rise again. I know I'm the resurrection of life. Mary comes weeping and falling at his feet, and instead of giving her a theology lesson, he just bawls. John eleven thirty three. Jesus saw her weeping, the Jews with her also, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Is Jesus following Paul's admonition? What did Paul say? Be anxious but nothing. Is Jesus anxious here? Hmm, weird. Look at Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. 
he comes into the garden, Luke chapter 22. He withdrew about a stone's throw, knelt down, prayed, verse 42. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not your will, but not my will, but yours be done. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And look at verse 44. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. His sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Is Jesus following Paul's admonition here? Be anxious for nothing? Or is Jesus a sinner? One more passage. Psalm chapter 13. The 13th Psalm is a heart cry of mine that I've prayed many times. Psalm 13. Psalm 13. This is written by whom? David. Good guy or bad guy? Eh, Mostly good guy. But some amazing failures, yeah. Man after God's own heart. King of Israel. Psalmist. Songwriter. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Be anxious for nothing. How does the psalm end? Verse 5, But I have trust in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What David is doing at the same time, at the same time, he is crying his heart prayer out to God, how long, O Lord, will you forget me? And at the same time saying, I have trusted in your steadfast love. Jesus in the garden at the same time is being in an agony So much so that his sweat is bloody and at the same time is praying to his father. Paul in Philippians chapter 4, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication let your request be made known to God. There's one little word there that I've skipped. What word did I skip when I read that? Thanksgiving. Could Jesus give thanks in the garden as he is about ready to bear the sin and shame of all of our stuff on the cross to be, per- to be nailed to a cross to die in shame and agony? Can he? Is there stuff he can give thanks for? There is. There is. What does anxious mean? It's the sort of thing where you've got too many things pulling on you at the same time. Martha and Mary in the home and Jesus comes and teaches and Mary is sitting at Jesus' feet just listening and drinking in his teaching. Martha is bustling about making sure everybody's glasses are full and there's goodies on their little plates and that everybody's comfortable and knows where the bathroom is. And Jesus says, Mary, you are, Martha, you are 
anxious. What does it mean? You're letting too many things draw you away from what's important. See, and Satan's agenda is to have us look at the trouble and have the trouble draw our mind away from the reality of Jesus. What this is saying is not, 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 can I say it one more time? Not have no fear and no sadness. This is not saying that you will not be concerned about what you're going to eat if Typhoon Yolanda has just blown your home away. This is not being, oh my gosh, when you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars of unanticipated debt through medical expenses. Of course you're concerned for those things. And I hear people all the time saying, if you trust God, you will have no trouble in your life. If you trust God, you will not have a troubled spirit. Well, if so, Jesus is a sinner. What is it saying? It's saying, don't let those cares, don't let those troubles, don't let those anxieties, don't let those concerns draw your heart away from that connection, that thankful connection with Jesus. This is not saying you will have no trouble in your life. It's not saying you won't wake up in the middle of the night with your head running. It's not saying that you'll burst into tears just thinking about what happened last night with your family. What it is saying is that you will be able to come and still give thanks for the presence and the power of God. Because your prayer is connecting you with Jesus and there's thanksgiving that says even in the midst of the horrors that Jesus went through, even in the midst of the agonies that David was facing, even in the midst of the imprisonment and the suffering that Paul is facing, that he could still rejoice in the fact that he is a child of the Most High God and that God is present with him. See, that's a very different picture than say you have no trouble. I grew up in a church that said that if you just trust God, there will be no anxiety in your spirit. And it's a lie. It's a lie. Unless Jesus is a sinner. Unless David is not a model for our life. Unless Paul is. What's he saying? Those anxieties will not draw you away and make you start shouting angrily, God, you're a bad God because you didn't take care of me. You didn't give me my whatever. Very different perspective. How do you do that? Connect in with prayer. He goes on. Finally, brothers, and he has a list here. It's an interesting list. Whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's any excellence, anything worthy of praise, ponder, think on these things. You know, this list, the virtues here, any Greek philosopher would have said amen to everyone on those lists. Everyone on that list, a Stoic philosopher would tie into. What's the difference in what Paul is saying and what the Stoic philosophers are saying? What's the difference between Jesus and Aristotle? The difference is, the difference is that even the best Stoic cannot maintain his composure when the troubles get to a certain level. 
The difference is the presence of God. What happened on November 22nd, 50 years ago? What did we celebrate on Friday? The death of JFK. Who were the other two men who died on November 22nd, 1963? C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley. How many of you heard of Aldous Huxley? Brave New World. Okay, good. We have in C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley two totally different ways to achieve happiness. Just out of curiosity, how many of you read Brave New World? Quite a few, good. Very literate congregation. Usually I do that and say, what? Yeah. What is Aldous Huxley's picture of what is the perfect world? Everybody is at the feely and everybody's taking soma, which is a tranquilizer, so that you have no desires, no feelings at all, and they're all numbed out and Russ Douthat, the New York Times columnist, wrote on this today in his column. He said, for Huxley, the critique took full shape in Brave New World, his famous portrait of a dystopia in which the goals of pleasure and stability have crowded out every other human good, burying discontent under antidepressants, genetic engineering, and virtual reality escapes. That is precisely what secularists are trying to do today. Precisely. Satisfy all your desires with drugs, with genetic engineering, not calling it that exactly, but that's what it is, and by alternate realities. The savage in Brave New World lists everything that's been purged in the name of pleasure and order, historical memory, art and literature, religion and philosophy, the tragic sense, and Mond, the controller, responds that these things are symptoms of political inefficiency and that the comforts of modern civilization depend on excluding them. I don't want comfort, the savage says. I want God, I want poetry, I want real danger, I want freedom, I want goodness, I want sin. And he was killed for his rebellion. See, there are two ways that you can do this. One is that you can do the numbing out, and you can do religious numbing out just as you can do antidepressants or virtual reality or genetic engineering numbing out. And that's the picture of secularism that says find all of your pleasures in the exquisite food or the perfect beer or the precise coffee or the perfect job or the best spouse or whatever, all of which will disappoint you. All of which will disappoint you. Or connect in with God. Should you be happy in this world? You're right, it's a trick question. Depends on what you mean by happy. The way we typically use the term happy is that we use it in the sense that all of my needs are met, all of my desires are satisfied. With that definition of happiness, could you be happy in this world? No. No. So when you're unhappy, what will you do? What will you do? Take a happy pill. Take a happy pill. That is Aldous Huxley's answer. Take a happy pill and go to the feely. How did Aldous Huxley die? Did you look at that? 
The last thing he did there on November 22, 1963, as the news was coming over the TV that JFK had been shot, is he asked for a final dose of LSD. He was living his life view with a happy pill. Was he happy? Not even slightly. Not even slightly. C.S. Lewis also died that same day at about the same time. Both men in their 60s. Did C.S. Lewis die happy? Not in the sense of every desire being done, but in the happy in the sense that his deepest desires were being fulfilled. Yes. 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 What is that deepest desire? That deepest desire is connection with God. And when you're not happy, when you're not happy, what will you do? Tim Keller has a great analysis. I like it. He says, when things are not happy, you can blame the things. I'm not happy. I have a defective wife. God replaced my wife. I am not happy. I don't have the right food that I want. I don't have the proper quiche with all the whatever it is. So I need to replace the quiche. I need to replace the life. I need to replace the, the job. The problem with that, of course, is that things will never satisfy that deep need. Another thing to do is to blame myself. It's not the bad wife. It's not the bad job. It's not the defective children. I am defective. How do you find out how defective you are? Get married or go to a therapist. They'll both show your defectiveness. But they give you no answers. Therapists will tell you you should be happy. You'll think happy thoughts and it'll be great and that won't get the job done because that's just putting another thing in there. A third response is to blame the universe. There is no happiness here. So you go into cynicism, despair. And part of the reason the suicide rates right now are going just astronomically high is people have brought in the third answer. It's the universe's fault. There's nothing good. There is no happiness. I may as well check out now. I'd be happier dead than I am alive. The fourth possibility is what is said here. And the fourth possibility is the problem isn't the things, it isn't me. I mean, there are, that's a problem, but not the fundamental problem. It's not the things, it's not me, it's not the universe. The problem is my relationship with God. The problem is my relationship with God. And that's why he says, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, let your request be made known to God. The Lord is near. For a moment here, I want to veer into some theological controversy. Is everything that happens in this world God's will? Is everything that happens here a part of God's decretive will for this world? And this is a place where very good people disagree. If you Look at John Piper or 
R.C. Sproul or many others, they will say yes, yes. Everything that happens, Typhoon Yolanda, MS attack just before marriage, whatever you want, as evil as it is, is God's perfect will because he is in control of everything and nothing happens, it's not a part of his sovereign plan. I don't think that's correct. I read scripture and I see God being very angry about the evil. I don't see God saying, yep, just as I planned. What I see happening in Romans 8.28, and your translations vary somewhat, but it will say, in all things, God works good for those who love him. In IV translation, I think that's correct. It doesn't say all things are God's will. In fact, some of the things that happen are against God's will, as I understand it, but not out of his understanding and plan. And so what we look for, and these are different answers to the same question, what happens when the hard things happen? Some will say, this is a sovereign plan of God, and I just need to trust that everything that happens is the Father's perfect will and will be for his best glory in the long run. And every evil thing has a purpose behind it. I don't think that's true, but very good people believe that. My take on this is that in all things, God is present and powerful and working his good in the midst of what is against his will. Now, those are two different answers, and they're significantly different. And we can debate this with text and redux. We can talk about that if you want. I think this is a world where stuff that happens is against God's will. We call it sin. But no sin, no matter how great, can stop God's goodness. And what Paul is asking us here to do is to look at the horrors of the world instead of like, well, it's really all for God's glory, I think, is to say God's glory can be revealed even in the most horrible thing. Even the greatest attack against him, it will not win, as I see it. So when I look at this passage, he says, whatever is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, if there's excellence, worthy of praise, ponder these things, meditate, focus on these things. What does God want us to focus on? What he is doing. Not just church stuff, because there's a lot of good stuff beyond the bounds of the church. Focus on what's good. Have my relationship fundamentally with Jesus Christ. And then from that, look at the awfulness. What's Satan's agenda? Look at the awfulness and say, your God sucks. You have a choice. You have a choice. What do you do in this kind of situation, just kind of a practical level? I've got, I'm a principal guy. I've got principles for everything. Identify the lie, attack the lie, name the truth, act on the truth. Four basic steps. If you've done a little counseling training, you realize that's cognitive behavioral therapy. Identify the lie. This world should be good if God's really in control. Attack the lie. Satan is at work. There's evil happening. 
This is a broken world. Name the truth. God is powerfully at work in this world, bringing good in the midst of the most horrible circumstances. Act on it. Go do good things for horrible things. Blake and Lindsay at Disney World, Disneyland. I'm not with them, but I can text them. And I did yesterday. I texted Lindsay and then I texted Blake. They were not having a good morning. Blake texted me back and said, Lindsay's doing better. I said, why? (laughs) I kidded him a little bit. I said, what good thing are you doing to make your new wife happy? You know, wanting to blame him for everything. It's a good thing. He said this, held her and told her how much I love her and how I will never leave her in the name of Jesus Christ. And he said this, your text is a good reminder of what helps her the most. What meant? I cared enough to text Blake and Lindsay. Is that a big deal? Is that a big deal? Yeah. I'm doing what Paul says here. I can do all things. I can move into this and remind Blake how to be the strong man of God that he is when life's a little overwhelming for him. And he and Lindsay had a whole lot better day yesterday because he took time out and just held his wife while she sobbed because it was so painful. Ponder the good things. Focus on the truth. Live in the reality that I'm a child of the Most High God and I am with Jesus and he is with me. The most famous psalm in the whole Bible is which one? Psalm what? What's the most famous psalm in the whole Bible? 23. Psalm 23. uh, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He... Making me lie down in green pastures, leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. You know, it's a great picture. It's a wonderful picture. Still waters, green pastures, Lord is shepherd. If it stopped at verse 3, it'd be great. What's verse 4? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Whoops, wait a minute. What's the shadow of death nonsense? I thought it was still waters and green pastures and paths of righteousness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not be terrorized by evil. I will be anxious for nothing. Why? Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for what? Thou art with me. The Lord is very near, Paul says. And see, that's the reminder that has to come all the time is I am not alone. I am with people to remind me. So Blake and I, texting yesterday reminding him that he is with Lindsay and that Jesus is with them both and there's a community around them praying and loving them. But life is hard. (laughs) It's not that you ignore the trouble, it's you bring goodness into the trouble in the name of Jesus. And how do you do that? With prayer and supplications, make your requests and your agonies known unto God. Don't deny the agonies and don't guilt yourself because you're feeling the agonies. Don't let that distract you from the reality that I'm a child of the Most High God, then you can be captivated by the goodness of God. Then you can be entranced by the beauty of His grace 
that will show up on a concrete slab in Ormoc City after Typhoon Yolanda has blown everything away. Then you can say, at bottom line, my God will supply the needs that are most important because Paul is saying, I know what it's like to be in need. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to be in prison. I also know what it's like to have God with me and captivated by his presence. Let's pray together. Father, this is such a mixed, difficult message, hard to live out. Father, I am very glad that you put this in the mouth of Paul, a man who was well acquainted with difficulty. Father, I'm glad that you put this in the mouth of Jesus, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief, who could bring joy into the midst of hard times. Lord Jesus, thank you for loving us enough to die for us, to to take our sins and our shame into yourself and give us your gift of life through your resurrection that you could be exalted above every enemy. Holy Spirit, be present in us individually and as a church so that we can live the reality and ponder the truth that we are children of the Most High God, precious members of your kingdom of light. And let us live that with hope. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.